Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein, and this edition features a repeat offender. I had the pleasure and honor of having a conversation a while back with Del Hamilton, an interdisciplinary artist, writer, curator, whose work includes a variety of mediums, performance, video, painting, photography. With roots in Belize, Honduras, the Caribbean, Dell incorporates the personal to explore the social geopolitical constructs of memory, gender, history, and citizenship. Dell is one of the ICA Bostons, as in Institute of Contemporary Art, 2021 Foster Prize recipients. Her work has been exhibited at the Museum of Fine Arts, also in Boston, Dartmouth College's Hood Museum of Art, and the Clark Institute in Williamstown. Her work has appeared in Art in America and NKA, Journal of Contemporary African Art. Dell's latest creative project for ICA Boston's Foster Prize is the multimedia installation, The End of Susan, The End of Everything. It's an homage to her mentor and friend, art historian Susan Decker, who died in 2016. Dell's also working on a variety of research and curators' projects at Harvard's Hutchins Center for African and American Research. Lots to talk about, so let's get to it. Dell, welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Thank you so much, Sandy. It's great to be a repeat offender. I love that. <laughs> That's the kind of repeat offender you want to be. I That's could have said part right. two, but that just sounded dull and boring. For people who don't know a whole lot about you, they can certainly listen to part one. But if there's anything that you want to share initially before we kind of dive into this very new project that you've been working on, go for it. Yeah, one thing I will say in terms of my current um, projects that I'm working on here at the Hutchins Center, last year, right before the pandemic, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the um, founding of the Department of African and African-American Studies at Harvard. And so I just did a walkthrough with some colleagues talking about some of that research and sort of filling in the, you know, the blanks in the timeline and very much about students being sort of the ones who engaged and were really trying to organize the department and found it. And as it turns out, Susan, my mentor, was here at Radcliffe around that same period of time between 1966 and 1970. Um, and, the, and the department itself gets founded um, in 1969. So in terms of those ties, that's sort of what I'm working on here at the Hutchins Center. Um, and then as it's led into my art practice, this constant weaving um, in terms of the relationship that I have with Susan just continues to show up and sort of threading the needle between both my academic role here at the at Harvard, but then this artistic role um, out in the world um, has been a very fun ride. The pandemic, while it obviously has impacted all of us, how much of an impact did it have on your art? Because that doesn't stop your creativity. That's, that is absolutely true. Um, when we shut down sometime in mid-March here at Harvard, we initially thought it would be for about a week. At, yeah, at, duh. Mm-hmm. At, that, at that time, we just had no idea. And then we end up realizing, oh, no, we're not ever going to come to our campus for a very long time. And we didn't know what that would mean. And so as the days were sort of rolling together where, you know, we weren't leaving the house, we didn't know what day it was, what time it was, I found myself feeling quite disembodied to some extent because the ritual of my day was sort of, was completely disrupted. Um, and, And my routine of coming into Cambridge, coming to my office, seeing my colleagues, and then after work, normally I'd be in my studio space working. And so that was all kind of thrown up in the air. And so 
for me, I found that period of time incredibly dis- disorienting. I ended up coming up with a name for it. Like, and I call it atemporal disembodiment. Basically <laughs> that I was sort of feeling outside of my body and almost right. not recognizing it. And at the same time too, I was outside of time because I'd lost, and there were so many days where it's just like, what day is it, you guys? Um, yeah. So I was one of those folks who was actually sneaking out to go to my studio just so I could spend time drawing so I could ground myself in something that was concrete. Why did you have to sneak out to go to your studio, which was your space? (laughs) Partly because at that time, Governor Baker here, he'd had this advisory in in effect for us to kind of shelter in place. But then at some point, too, there were curfews, basically. They sort of wanted people to be off the streets in the evening time. And so Uh at, at that time, it was it felt a little surreptitious in terms of like, okay, no one's on the streets, no one's on the road. But I found myself again, getting so stir crazy in the house that I just could not function in the way that I normally do. And because I also have a learning disability, again, for me, making art and thinking and drawing and sketching and and reading and going to libraries, which is a lot of my life here at the Hutchins Mm -hmm. Center, that was just Mm -hmm. completely gone. And so that's why I partly say it was a kind of a, a sneak out. Everybody was, is mostly going to Target and the supermarket <laughs> right? Yeah. right? And, and ordering stuff from Amazon. I was like, yeah, I need, I need a sketch pad and I need some pencils and I need to get out of this bubble of, you know, either watching, you know, news all day in those insane right. press conferences or on Twitter, reading these very long threads about how scared we all were. So there was something about art making for me and the pandemic that was actually quite generative, where it really just kind of grounded me in the present. And so for me, it actually ended up paying off because I produced a lot of drawings during that period of time. And some of those works will be in a new show that's opening this coming spring at Montserrat College of Art here in Massachusetts. And then 2021, I spent that entire time developing my project for the ICA, the the multimedia installation that we're going to talk about that's dedicated to Susan's memory. I would have thought that that would have been just such a very special thing that I'm incapable of doing, going outside of myself, you know, Mm -hmm. and having this creativity. Sure, it would be ideal to be in my studio, but that doesn't necessarily prevent me from right. still doing that, you know, and I'm not, I'm not dismissing your feelings at all. I mean, I, there's, there's some envy in that, you know, that you, that you're able to do that. And I have to say, parenthetically, as we got deeper into the pandemic, obviously not in the very beginning. And I've said this, um, I said this particularly when I um, interviewed Darcy Alexander, the chief curator at the Jewish museum. Yes. I Honestly, loved her podcast. Adele, that was my way of not going nuts. Mm. once that all opened and everybody followed the rules as I mentioned to her I didn't know who Alice Neal was and whether it was that exhibit or going to see Cezanne's drawings at MoMA or going to see David Hockney's very personal drawings of his family at the Morgan it it was just such a such an education and and I just really on some level felt so blessed to be able to do that yeah, I I am one of those folks who, for like you know, museum institutions, art institutions, they are sacred spaces to me. Those sacred are spaces, those are basically right. my that's they're basically my church, my form of church. I was the kid who cut school to go to the museum um, because that was a that was a place where I had time to myself, but then sort of 
you know, parachuted into another world. I have four brothers and so I'm the only girl. And so our household was very crowded. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And and, very masculine, I bet. Very masculine. And Mm -hmm. so for me, yeah, that was sort of where I've always been able to find space for myself and to commune with others. And I, I enjoyed Darcy's talk so much in her podcast with you, partly because I also refer to her work um, in one of her exhibitions called Slideshow. And that particular exhibition, I think it was uh, exhibited in 2006, but I actually read her that catalog as I was developing my project for the ICA because Susan, uh, I inherited hundreds and hundreds of art slides from Susan because she was an, an art historian and an art historian with, you know, obviously this encyclopedic knowledge of art. And so I had many of her slides and I had her her Kodak slide projectors, but at the time I, I didn't quite know what to do with them. And then as I got to know some of the artworks um, and artists who I didn't even know about, I just became more enamored with that technology. So big shout out to Darcy Alexander in terms <laughs> of what she was talking about in that exhibition, but also too in the new exhibition that's up at the Jewish Museum, that the stewardship of objects and material culture. Just astounding. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting a chance to see that exhibition as well. So let's talk about Susan Denker, who had on so many levels quite an impact on your life. Take us from the beginning of your relationship and meeting to where you are today with what you have done to honor her. Yep. I guess is the best way to describe that. That is a very good way to describe it. So she and I met in 2009 um, when I was in graduate school at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts um, at Tufts University. So I was in grad school between 2008 and 2011, give give or take. It took me a little longer to finish because again, as I said, I have a learning disability. So doing art history courses and writing papers, not really my thing, but Needless to say, it's during that period of time where I was actually trying to find my footing as an artist. I do not have a bachelor's in fine art. My undergrad degree is in journalism. Um, And so I had, you know, transferable skills in terms of doing research and asking questions. But what does that mean when you get to art school? And so I'd taken photojournalism courses in the past. I took photo classes in the past. So I thought that was really going to be where I would be focusing my practice. But as you know, when you get to grad school, um, regardless of your field, they're just throwing a lot of stuff at you. And at, right. uh, and at the museum school where, where Susan taught for two decades, she'd amassed this knowledge of teaching, but also as well sort of thinking about how art impacted her. And I think that's mostly how she developed her own courses focused on African-American art or African-American film or, or women's studies. And so I got introduced to her through a classmate named Colin Washington Jr., who's a dear friend, who's a painter um, based in New York now. And, you know, I was telling him, I'm really struggling. I don't know where my work is going. I don't know what I should focus on. Should I be doing performance art? Should I be doing video? Should I be doing this? And, you know, he said, you know, I think you need to talk to Susan. Um, She lives in Cambridge, not far from the Hutchins Center where you are in Harvard Square, and she's got this encyclopedic knowledge of art, and I think you two would really hit it off. And he was right. So we met in Porter Square in Cambridge over coffee and talked for probably about three hours about art and exhibitions that we loved and about Clement Greenberg and his impact on abstract expressionism. So we just kind of really hit it off over the years. And so we would spend time going to exhibitions or 
talking on the phone or emailing back and forth, arguing about different things. And so over the years, even after I graduated from the museum school in 2012, we very much stayed in touch because obviously she had an apartment in Harvard Square and it's sort of the typical intellectuals apartment with books stacked from the floor to the ceiling, fourth floor walk up. Um, when she retired from teaching, she and her husband were running an online bookstore called arttext.com where they sold rare artist books as well. And so that was where she then sort of, you know, moved her teaching um, from sort of being in a classroom as she sort of brought it online. You started as a mentee with a mentor, yes, correct? And sure. then it morphed into something much more than that in, yep. in a way as equal partners. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a very good way to describe it. Because certainly once I finished school, I, I was a lot more confident in what my work was about. And I finally had the language to talk about history and gender and citizenship and all of those different things. But it was from spending so much time with Susan and her really kind of urging me to just kind of lock myself in the studio. Now, it's a little hard to do, you know, to be in the studio 48 hours a week because I do have a day job, a day job that I love, and I like having health insurance, yeah. <laughs> right? So um, she kind of wanted me to sort of just leave that behind and just move to New York when I finished school. And so the relationship did have some tensions in that she, I think, to some extent, saw me as a daughter as well. And she put, mm. she would sort of kind of refer to me as sort of being like her last child that she's sort of just kind of birthing and getting out into the world. And you need to just lock yourself in the studio for 40 hours a week. If you have to do self-talk, like tell yourself like Dell's impressive, you're amazing. You can do whatever you want, Dell. You are smart enough to do all the things that you want to do. It's whether or not you really want to be an artist. And I think she would sort of would have those questions for me again, because I loved having my job here at the Hutchins Center. And I think in her mind, she was still very much married to this notion of the, the sort of, um, you know, solitary individual genius artists that has time on their hands to just kind of lock themselves in the studio and make paintings all day. And Is that I, what you had hoped to do? Is that what you needed to do? I think that over time while I was in school and certainly once I finished school, I became really enamored with performance art. And so at some point I sort of make the shift from photography into performance art, which I loved making. And one of my first gigs right out of grad school um, was a solo performance at the Museum of Fine Arts, a really distinguished mm. institution. It was like my first paid gig. And I sort of, after that, doing that performance, the, the gigs just kind of kept lining up. And I think in her mind, she certainly did not take performance art seriously. I was going to ask, did she come and see that premiere she, performance? She did not. She really did dismissive not. of it, She huh? was dismissive of that medium. She really felt like I needed to be making photographs and going back to drawing and, and focusing on more sort of these modernist traditions rather than performance art as a sort of like conceptual contemporary art practice in the way that it, that it functions now um, in the present. So there was always those... Do attention. For sure. Mm -hmm. um, she even, you know, talked about like, Dell, you need to get on a wait list for those co-ops in New York. That way you can get a cheap place to live. And then when I, <laughs> and then when I come to visit, I can crash at your place. Like she had a, she was certainly very practical. <laughs> she was being practical about this thing. Right. And so, um, but yeah, I also realized as well, she's from a different generation 
But also, too, she grew up pretty well to do as well. And I think that that was the piece that she didn't quite you sort of understand. I'm My roots are very working class immigrant. Even certainly when I told my parents I was going to art school, they were like, oh, my God, what are you talking about? Like, exactly. You know, yeah. What the hell? Yeah. What the hell is that? Right. So there's that. But I think in her mind, she was forgetting that many artists and certainly many male artists always had sort of built in either patrons or like Jeff Koons, you know, worked on Wall Street, right? And so there's lots of, you know, artists who have means and resources that they can tap into so that that allow them to be able to just be in the studio all the time. And I just didn't have that luxury of- Did she get it after a while? I think towards the end, she got it, but I think she was still- kind of worried because she really did think I needed to be in New York as well. She sort of felt Boston was too small. She grew up on the Upper East Side in New York and she still she still really, as I said, you know, she wanted to come and crash with me, you know, once I got an apartment there. So in her mind, she thought she, you know, that New York was still really where it was at. Boston's fine, but this is kind of just a lab, Dell. You need to be out there in the world in New York. I mean, I don't know if she, you know, and I have to keep reminding her, you know that there's like literally 1 million artists who are in New York right, <laughs> right now. Yeah. It, it, is the num- it is the number one market. And there's obviously there's great communities of artists there making all kinds of work. But you do realize that, again, in that sort of crowded feel with not, you know, again, not having very deep pockets as a, like I said, working class kid. It's just like, how was I going to make my way towards doing that? And so again, that was always sort of a, a tension there. But the things that we did bond over were, we were both women who had, you know, sort of fraught relationships with our mothers and mm. mother motherhood and daughterhood, like those things are sort of always potent territories, right? And so her mom was a chef, um, and so I've found, you know, different kinds of documentation of letters from, let's say, her physician who was seeing her when she was being treated for depression and her her clinician telling the mom, like, no, this what she's experiencing doesn't have anything to do with a lack of mo- motivation. It has to do with her own value and, and what she wants to contribute to her field, but also to who she is as a thinker and a perfectionist. And so she was she would always kind of warn me as well about the instances where I would get stuck and I didn't know when and how an idea might develop, she would sort of just kind of remind me like, you know, don't let your perfectionism sort of get in the way of making your art, Dell. And so she would sort of impart these kinds of, you know, insights because she had been through it as a emerging scholar when she was doing her graduate work, um, her PhD work at Brown University. And so she, over the years, I think she was deeply aware of, again, her own limitations. And certainly I going to school and learning that I have this learning disability and then getting diagnosed. And then also too, having to be in therapy, doing this kind of internal sort of self-reflection. And so I, we both knew ourselves, I think fairly well and, and mirrored some of those things back and mm-hmm. forth to mm-hmm. one another. Um, she often would say as well too, that I was, that we were too much alike. We were both too headstrong and knew ourselves almost too well to take chances. And so I sort of, there's a part of me too, it's just like, I don't know, I take a lot of chances in my work all the time. But again, those were things that we were constantly wrestling with. But when we weren't wrestling with those things, we were going to see exhibitions and and talking and thinking about artists whose work that we were really, you know, excited about or artists whose work we're not so excited about. So we always had lots and lots of things 
to talk about. Um, so there so- was a real ebb and flow in this relationship. And I am sure that there were times when you both might have felt exasperated by each of you. That is exactly right. Yes, absolutely. And so this relationship went on for quite some time, um, New York notwithstanding, when you moved back to to the Boston area. I was born in New York, and then when my parents separated in the early 1980s is when my mom relocates with me and my brothers to Boston, and then we we spend many years here. So I've been mostly educated here uh, in in Boston. So I I meet Boston. I meet Susan, as I said, when I'm um, going to school here in Boston at the School of Museum of Fine Arts. So then how did it morph into something more than what it was? More than what it was. When I say that you got slammed, I mean that on so many levels. I'm guessing had basically no fucking idea. (laughs) That is absolutely right. So, um, yeah, I, I think about that a lot. Like, when did it sort of turn a corner? And I think probably, in the, again, in those mother-daughter tensions, I myself have sort of looked back over the years and realized, yes, yeah, Susan was definitely a mother figure. And I had a handful of teachers when I was growing up, both in New York and Boston, um, like surrogate Jewish moms who had been my re- really my protectors um, when I was in school. It's, I did have black teachers, but they were not the teachers that affirmed me. And my theory is that it was white folks who came up during a certain period of time during the 1960s and 70s and were galvanized by all of these civil rights movements, the the women's rights movements, the queer you know, movements and, and, and really thinking about that, those particular years as tumultuous and violent as they were as catalysts for how they were going to go out into the world and make it a better place. And so I had really, I think the gift of several of these teachers. So Mrs. Cohen in um, the sixth grade, Mrs. Schultz in 10th grade, um, in high school, and so, and certainly Susan Denker, and so there were just a, a just as I said, this kind of like trio of figures who constantly reminded me of what my strengths were, and so those things were turned out to be writing, and they turned out to be theater, and they turned out to be poetry and and oratory club and and spelling. I was always like the spelling bee champ, and so even though I wasn't so great about doing my homework, Mrs. Schultz was good about sort of steering me towards the things that I was. Right. What difference does it make in the scheme of things? Yeah. Precisely. Precisely. So, um, so yeah, Susan was definitely one of those folks. So oftentimes too, I would be sending her my, my CV for her to like look at and edit. I'd be, you know, applying to residencies and things. And she's like, okay, well, let's look at which images you're going to see, we're going to submit. So for in her mind, she is shaping and molding me and I'm, and to some extent, I think she may have thought, okay, too, you're kind of an open vessel. I can just sort of pour all of myself into it. Right. But of right. course, my, my own ego is in there too. And I'm an artist as well. So it's like, okay, nope, this is, I do have a studio practice now. I'm out of school. I've got to shape this in my own. So there must've been some bunking of heads at times. Did she get that? The other challenge for her is that her, her husband was very ill as well. And so she was needing to pull back a little bit just for her own sort of sanity. And, I, and she was also facing some um, health issues as well. We had found, we had found some documentation um, after she passed away in terms of, you know, doctor's visits that she was um, going to. And so 
towards the end, I would say like between 2015 mostly is where I saw less and, and less of her, partly because her husband, Jerry, was very, very ill and she was incredibly concerned about his health. And so there's a part of me too, sort of felt like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to take up more space right. in, in, in your life as you're going through this, um, you know, because at that time they weren't quite sure what was going on with Jerry. Later on, they learn it's probably Lou Gehrig's disease, but at the time she's kind of shuffling him back and forth from doctor's appointments and things like that. And, and really sort of really frustrated and exasperated. Like, I know Jerry's really ill. I know he's sick. He's not eating. He's not sleeping. Like nothing is working. I'm taking him to all these doctors. And so it took many, many months. And so um, for me as well, I sort of also realized, okay, I'm, I'm an adult as well. So I want to also give her space to take care of herself as well. So there's a part of me too, didn't also didn't want her to worry. Like, you know, like it's going to be fine. I'm going to figure it out. You tend did, to. Did Jerry. she have children? She did not. She uh, did yeah. Not. That would make perfect sense. So that's part of it. And I was named in the will. And then a few of her other students were named in, in her will, because again, we were her surrogate children. Um, and so it, in those ways, I think in her mind, she knew that perhaps she might've been really ill. She didn't share that with me and didn't share it with a lot of her close friends. And that's still always going to be a question mark. But yeah, when I get a call in early 2016 in January, I learned that she, um, my friend Colin Washington would introduce us who, um, he calls me and he tells me that Susan passed away and I'm, and it's a gut punch because I'm just in complete shock. And sure. And the last well, if you had no indication or no clue, had she been ill for some time that she hid that? I think so. I think it's quite possible. I know that there were some instances where she went to go see an oncologist. And so uh, quite possible. Um, she was a chain smoker. So quite possible. There were some concerns around lung cancer, but she ultimately has a stroke and then gets rushed to the hospital and is tended to there, but then does not um, survive. And so when I get that call, as I said, it's a complete gut punch. It's the sure. dead of winter and I'm stunned. I don't quite know what to say because the last time I, I saw her was, um, I think that September, uh, she'd come to one of the talks that we hosted here at the Hutchins Center for an art historian named Kelly Jones. And we hugged and smiled and I said, you know, let me know if you want to meet up for coffee. I know you've, you're you're looking after Jerry and you're kind of, you know, trying to, you know, dismantle her apartment, basically her life, because Jerry passes away that summer of 2015. And so I, I knew that she was still grieving, um, but she was not, you know, like returning phone calls or emails and, and things like that. And so um, when I would try to check up on her, she wasn't letting me up upstairs there were some days she would, you know, be up for company and, and then like we were helping her pack things because in her mind too, she thought maybe I'll, I'll renovate the apartment in Cambridge, I'll sell it and then I'll move back to New York finally. And so she had some sense of what she might do, but the death of her husband, who's her soulmate, they'd been together for four decades. And the way that she described that loss is as catastrophic. And so her trying to find her own footing in that sea change of not having her partner um, took a toll on her as well. And so- That might have sped up her demise in a way, precisely. which I believe can happen. Absolutely, I, um, exactly. That it is possible to die of a broken heart. 
how much longer after her husband passed away did she die? So he passes away in that the summer of 2015, and then she's gone six months later. Wow. In January 2016. Oh, yeah. So you get all this other stuff dumped in your lap. I don't mean literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I do a little bit. But what happened? What happens? In her will, you must have been gobsmacked. I was. I learned that she passes away, and then her good friend calls me and, you know, tells me, you know, Dell, I've got to be in touch with you soon. You know, I want to have your updated contact information. I have to get in touch with you about the will. And I'm just like, oh, what are you talking about? Like, sure. I, you know, so I just kind of, I was like, okay, it's, it's fine, Charlie. Like Susan didn't mention anything to me about a will. So it's fine. I'm, I don't need to even talk about it. For me, her death was already so traumatic. I was wrestling with my own grief. So uh, an inheritance was the farthest yeah. thing from my mind. Um, but then the summer of 2016, I get an official phone call from her estate attorney and they indicate to me that I have essentially inherited the contents of her apartment. And as I said, this is an apartment they've li- they'd lived in, in de- for decades in Harvard Square and it is literally floor to ceiling. Holy shit. Yeah. And, and bookcases. It is taxi receipts medications it's um vintage marameco dresses um vintage valentino designer coats but beautiful books on poetry and philosophy and african-american art and dishes and irons and uh you know vibrators just just the whole (laughs) she led an eclectic life she led a very eclectic life a very Full life. And so as I'm, you know, and basically then it's go to the apartment and putting, put green dots on, you know, the things you want or you don't want. And I'm just like, okay, if I don't want it, what happens to it? Like, well, yeah, we're just going to trash it then. And I'm just like, you're not going to donate it? Or they're like, no, we don't have time to do that. They're trying to, the attorneys are obviously trying to wrap up the estate. For me, that's heartbreaking to think that any of her things or Jerry's things end up in a dump site, you know, wasted or something like that. And so I just couldn't bear to part with it probably because I couldn't bear to part with her. Right. As I said, furniture, microwaves, dishes, cutlery, the whole nine yards pretty much. And so we spend most of the second half of 2016 trying to organize it and pack it. And then by the end of the year, everything gets hauled off and moved into a 10 by 10 foot storage unit and it's also filled floor to the ceiling. And then I lock it up and then don't think about it for two years because I just can't bear to think about what's in those boxes and what am I going to do with it? And so, I mean, at that point, did you think it was mostly mundane items? Despite all this shit, there's something that is really can be happening here. Yeah. So at, at one point I sort of start thinking about, well, I know that she was this collector and I know that there were some books, some rare books that she had, you know, mentioned to me in the past. So I thought I, cause I hadn't packed in any of it, her, the movers packed any, everything. So I wasn't really sure what was there besides just, as I said, just kind of you didn't take a major inventory. I wasn't really taking an inventory of things. And then At some point, I decided that, okay, I found a bookstore, a local bookstore that's run by local 
teens here in the Boston area. And it's, and it's run by them in terms of sales and management. And they are, you know, young kids who are caught up in the different kind of court systems within the city of Boston and Massachusetts, but they run this great bookstore. And I think, you know what, I can donate some of Susan's books to this bookstore and that will help me kind of start going through these things. Um, cause obviously it costs money to rent a storage unit. For, sure. So I'm, I'm starting to think about, okay, how can we downsize this? Because certainly this is costing me a lot of money. And just even the grief itself is sort of just kind of sitting there and taking up space in my life. And it's when I start opening the boxes and, and that's when I'm realizing like, oh my goodness, this is a first edition Sylvia Plath of, you know, book of her poetry from mm. 1972, Winter Trees. Um, and then as I continue to open more boxes, I find more of those really interesting gems, like a book by Jean-Paul Sartre that is called Nuritours, and it's got these beautiful drawings in it by an artist who goes by the name of Wals, so W-O-L-S. And so that book alone, when I looked it up online, this, you know, tiny little book, maybe four by eight inches tall and wide, $2,000. So it was weird things like that. And and it wasn't that they were packed in with a whole bunch of valuable things. They were shoved in with like mystery novels and cooking, you know, books. There was no order. There was really no order to it as the movers were packing things. And that's when it dawned on me, like, oh my God, like, what is happening? Like, what is happening? What is happening here? So it's over time that I began to realize, wow, there's some real beautiful, you know, intimate ways, other ways that I'm getting to know who Susan is as a person, but also as a collector and a thinker. And so as I'm kind of going through the boxes when I'm realizing like, wow, this is, this is insane. How did my life sort of (laughs) take this very sharp turn and go in this different direction and thank god i didn't just like put things in the trash but didn't you notice some of this when you were visiting her not all of it in terms of the the really precious things could have been that much of a surprise to you right yeah i knew that as i said that they ran this online bookstore i knew she had been donating some books before she had passed away because as i said she was trying to downsize the apartment um, and try to, you know, renovate it and get back to New York. So I just had kind of assumed that they all ended up being donated or perhaps she had given them away to other folks. She had been giving me her, like her, her class syllabi and some of her clothing and shoes prior to that. And so I hadn't, like I said, I, it wasn't really till I'm going through the boxes in, in the storage unit by flashlight because and it was motion detector light. So the lights never even stayed on most of the time. Oh, yeah. That's where I'm sort of getting these kinds of, you know, interesting finds. It's very kind of intimate ways of thinking about how she led her life as a lover of um, not just visual art, but poetry and classical music and black exploitation films. And so it began to give me just a much fuller picture of who she was. Um, and so when did it become so obvious to you that down the road you needed to put together an exhibition? Was it obvious? It wasn't. It wasn't. I started to think about, okay, should I try to donate these things? Should I, should I make a list? Should I document everything? Should I get insurance? It was, it was more kind of the logisticals, like, okay, how am I even going to continue to pay for storage every month? So there were those questions. I had also seen around that time, I'd, I'd seen the work of other artists who had 
sort of taken on someone else's archive, someone else's belongings and created artworks out of them. So slowly the pieces started to kind of fall into place. Like, okay, what could an installation look like? And then in 2019, I had a studio visit with Jeffrey Dubois, who's one of the curators at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. And um, I showed him some of my photographs and we talked about books and exhibitions and artists and um, different ideas that I had. And I tell him this wild story, uh, how I've inherited my mentor's <laughs> personal things. And mm -hmm. he's intrigued by it. And, and I'm sort of, you know, kind of just thinking out loud with him. Like, I've always wondered, like, how would I make a project out of this? And he's like, that's actually a good question, Del. Like, you know, do you think you could do a project? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I'm just still kind of going through these boxes myself because the year prior in 2018, I learned that there's a second storage unit that has, that has more books and more furniture in it. But when I met with Jeff, he was just really supportive of, again, knowing about the way that my work here unfolds at the Hutchins Center in terms of research and archivals. And, and as I'm developing exhibitions, I'm constantly doing research. So he just sort of was open to me sort of like talking out loud about like what could happen if it would look like an, an installation. Um, and so we had talked about the work of Renee Green, um, who did a piece called The Import-Export Funk Office. And I saw that piece at the at the Whitney several years ago, but it was basically an archive that belonged to a friend of hers. And it sort of was a library space, archive space that was chronicling hip hop culture, as well as um, black art, cult, visual art culture, as well as black films. And so I remember Jeff and I talking about that particular installation when he came to my studio. And so that was sort of like where the seeds got planted. Um, and then in 20. 20, he calls me in November of 2020 and says, you know, Dell, you're one of the recipients of the Foster Prize. And initially I'm just like, what? Like, can you repeat that, please? It's a very <laughs> prestigious prize. I didn't think I had a, a shot in hell to, to get the award. And then, um, you know, he, he's like, do you want to do your project on Susan? And I thought, yeah, that's exactly it. In other words, to be the recipient of the Foster Prize, you had to come up with what's the, what, what's the best way to describe this with a, with a, with a concept a project description right right so because as i as i learned over time jeff is just as obsessed with books <laughs> as i am and so i think that's why he really got sort of the nature of susan's things as archive library sort of space and so as he and I were talking about like, what could the project be? Initially, we just kind of were just looking through the art slides and just kind of walking through history, basically through modern modernism and contemporary art and sort of just thinking about like, okay, what, what could it look like? What do we do with all these slides? How, how would we organize these books? And so that all comes together over the space of 2021 and the show opens September 1st of 2021. So it's basically between November of 2020 to September of 2021, where I'm, as I said, trying to work out what the nature of this installation is going to look like. And it, it, so the it, Foster Prize was the trigger. Exactly. Precisely. Precisely. Uh -huh. Because, that, I mean, I could have done, I certainly could have done another project idea or kind of drawn on some of my previous work, right? So I, I could have done that. Right. 
but there was, I think for me, I think I felt like I was ready to go through the process of making sense of Susan's death. I also thought because of the pandemic, I knew that there were other folks who had lost loved ones and were probably doing the same thing that I was, trying to decide what to do with someone's most personal possessions. And that idea sort of creating this space for reflection, again, in a museum space, which seemed like holy ground to me, it just kind of made sense that this was my opportunity to do it. And, and it was also, too, an opportunity for me to have funding in order to execute a project like this, because otherwise I, I wasn't quite sure would things just kind of keep sitting in the storage unit and just kind of taking up space or did they need to be shared with the world and thought about and curated and organized? How was this received? I don't know who Susan Denker was. Sure, sure, sure. Was that obvious to people, not obvious? It, w- it was definitely obvious to her colleagues um, who came to the opening. They were all really touched and have indicated been very moved by me, again, so thoughtfully organizing her books and personal possessions, partly because they too had not properly grieved her death as well, because she didn't tell some of her closest colleagues that she taught with at school that she was sick. And so for them, it was a space and some way to sort of have some level of catharsis. Um, And then one of her classmates from Radcliffe got in touch with me, who was a retired arts writer. Her name is Rebecca Nemser. And she was, you know, one of her classmates at Radcliffe. And so she had heard from a a fellow colleague um, in the field of art that I had this exhibition that was up at the ICA and she goes to see the exhibition. And she's like, Del, I just would, I'd love to have lunch and talk about Susan with you. This is such a beautiful project. And it's really Rebecca's sort of cheerleading. who's like, you know, Del, I think more people need to know about your project. So then I thought, okay, well, let, let me find Sandy Klein's email <laughs> and, and write her a note about, uh-huh. again, a myself as a creative woman, but Susan as this creative woman thinker who had this really interesting life, particularly because she was so invested in African-American art as well. So she's someone who also was a steward of, of Black art, partly because at her at the school, there weren't a lot of teachers. There weren't very many Black teachers, uh, number one. But secondly, much of the coursework wasn't teaching on the work of African-American artists. And so Susan then takes it upon herself to develop syllabi and course material to teach the work of African-American artists. And then she also develops a database called the African-American Visual Artists Database, and it has 11,000 entries. And so it's this kind of running catalog that I'm hoping her estate will continue to maintain, but it sort of gives a kind of um, bibliography for artists working across the world and where they've exhibited their work. And so well, there's um, so many layers to this still, not the least of which is a public service. Yeah, I certainly did think a lot about that. I think very much about this project as the way that I think about my curatorial work as, and certainly my performances, the way that they're always kind of riven with, with memory, sort of walking through time wrestling with grief. This tie that binds, this thread? 
precisely this this thread that sort of continues to go in and through my work. One of the performances that I did at the Hood Museum right before lockdown, it was it's called Blues Blank Black, and it's an homage to black women who've been killed um, by police officers. And so mm-hmm. I hadn't I hadn't set out in in school to be making work that wrestles with with grief and creating space for those things. But I, I just know that over time, and certainly we know that, you know, as Americans, oftentimes we have very difficult time talking about death and dying. We have a, we have a hard time talking about how much we need each other. And I think with this pandemic as well, if this is, if this isn't a moment to realize how interdependent we are, then I, then I don't know what is that to me this so there's another another public service that's being performed so yeah so really trying to make sense for so many folks who've lost friends as a result of the pandemic or family members as a result of the pandemic but certainly just even the 2000s right the 2000s start with 9-11 for right right right, right. I as I was going through the different books and films, you know, they all, many of them are sort of covering that this period of time living through 9-11 and obviously now living through a a pandemic. It's sort of me thinking about other folks that I've lost over the years. Uh, When I was in school, my grandmother and my oldest aunt died this, the fall before my thesis show and they died within two months of each other. Wow. And so, um, so yeah, as I said, I hadn't, I hadn't set out when I was in school Well, life is funny that way. The best laid plans don't mean anything. Part of the reason why I I titled it The End of Susan, The End of Everything, partly because there's sort of like the end is also a a beginning to some extent. And I certainly also, too, I think just living through the last few years of the Trump presidency, I'm sort of thinking a lot about the end of democracy as well. There's plenty to think about. Everything old is new again. That's exactly right. So I knew that when I came up with that title, I was sort of opening a door mm-hmm. into multiple histories that are constantly intertwined with art, because that's what artists do. We're constantly wrestling um, with culture and history and, and and trying to reckon with the present. So, um, yes, and we're really glad you do. <laughs> your wrestling and your pain notwithstanding. I mean, we benefit from that for sure. It's been generative and healing for me as well. And so people have been posting on Instagram and tagging me and, and telling me like, I saw your your installation. It was so beautiful and moving. And so um, thank you. So um, I'm incredibly touched by the response to it. It was, it was incredibly hard because as, as I described, there were two storage units <laughs> to, yeah. to, to go through. There were 60 boxes wow. that we delivered to the ICA um, and assembled on site and sort of each of the cubbies sort of tell a story. They're almost kind of a a still life sort of populated with some of Susan's favorite books and perhaps like her baby photos or her favorite camera or her, her glasses or her, her husband's photo. And so, um, so yeah. Clearly the woman knew what she was doing. I'm really glad you reached out. It's quite a different road that, uh, that you traveled. I'm sure. Good. Thank you so much. I I really, really appreciate talking with you again, Sandy. And it was so interesting. And again, I didn't know who Susan Danker was. I now know who Susan Danker was. That's another another public service. (laughs) Am I deifying you, Dell? Well, (laughs) I kept thinking about this as well, too, right? I'm sure you probably thought about this in radio, right? So 
the ways that women's voices sort of are not captured, right? And so, you know, when you're dealing with certain industries and certainly art is no exception, for me, it's just always about like, yeah, where are women's voices? Oh um, God, you're so right. Right? It's just like, yeah, they cannot be left out of the archive. They can't just be kind of- And we're still working on that. You we're know, still you would working think on it, that. It would be second nature at some point. I don't want to get super political and I don't want to get angry, but right. it doesn't but, take yeah. much for me to be either one. But um, I really want to thank you for sharing this experience and this passion. It was really a joy. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Sandy. I really appreciate it. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.